The Gist is brought to you by Betterment, the largest automated investing service managing billions of dollars for people just like you. Get up to six months of investing free when you go to Betterment.com slash Gist. Betterment, investing made better. The following podcast contains explicit language. Wednesday, February 10th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The results are in, and Donald Trump has repeated this vow. I am going to be the greatest jobs president that God ever created. Remember that. No, I am not a religious man, and I have heard that God works in mysterious ways. But let us suppose for a moment that it is indeed God's agenda to help America achieve full employment, a goal that God was into in the 90s, but less so in the late aughts. God was really uninterested in this goal during the 30s, apparently, but then God rediscovered his American employment goals in the 40s, and he used the very strange vehicle of a world war to achieve this goal. Strange not to an economist, but strange to God, or at least the conception of God that others have foisted upon me. Now, if you were God, how would you go about getting people jobs? Maybe you'd put oil in the ground and then make cars run on oil. That'd be clever. Maybe you just grant a wish. Nice lady goes to sleep at night, wakes up, reads a want ad. You, your God, you put that want ad there. She applies for the job. But you, as God, you're the hiring manager. And then she begins work. Or you could go about it this way. All right, I'm God. We'll have a recession. Then we'll have a recovery. But then... We'll get Donald J. Trump to be president. It's all laid out in 2 Corinthians. Oh, by the way, this greatest jobs president ever will be a tough talking point if Trump winds up running against Hillary Clinton because she could say, okay, Donald, perhaps you are a job-creating vessel of the Lord, but right now the leader in the clubhouse in terms of presidential job creation, that'd be my husband. He created 23 million jobs in office. Just reminding you. So perhaps Donald Trump's claim isn't realistic. We will investigate all of the campaign news as we join the realistic news network in the spiel. But first, a documentary now airing on HBO is called Homegrown. It's about the threat of domestic terrorism. The doc's director and three of its subjects joined me in studio to discuss. Homegrown, The Counter-Terror Dilemma is a new film on HBO. It is a concise distillation of so many of the issues we've been facing as Americans about terrorism, and it tells the story in human ways. A number of people connected with the film are here with me. Greg Barker is the director. Philip Mudd is a former deputy director of the FBI's National Security Branch. And we have two people extremely touched by acts of terror. There's Carrie Cahill, who is a daughter of one of the victims of the 2009 massacre at Fort Hood. And then we have Nader Hassan, who's actually the cousin of Major Nadal Hassan, who was the shooter in Fort Hood. Here's where I want to start. Philip Mudd, I want to start with you. And this is probably not a question you get asked a lot, but I read a lot about terrorism and I try to keep things in context and perspective. My question is, shouldn't we be saying why hasn't there been more homegrown terrorism? Because when you look at how guns are available in America and when you compare it to other countries, there's been, maybe we've been lucky, you tell me, but it seems like there's been a relative dearth 
of what could be horrible acts of terrorism. I think that's correct. When you compare us to the incidents of terrorism in Europe and you consider the fact that America is the head of the snake from the adversary's perspective, you would expect to see more here. There are reasons you see less. One is our population looks, including our immigrant population, looks fundamentally different than what you would see in Europe. And the second is, as someone who served at both the CIA and the FBI, we put tremendous resources on this problem, far more than the Europeans put on the problem, because the political pressure on the Bureau and the agency has been, if anything happens in this country, it's on you. So that tends to lead people like me to say, we're going to put as much as we got on a problem that's relatively modest compared to Europe. But I really do think our immigrants, our Muslim population, it might not seem like this all the time, and it's not as good as it could be, but are relatively well integrated. And if you look at statistics like in France, something like two thirds of prisoners are Muslim. That's just not the case here. But Nader Hassan, I want to turn to you. You're a Muslim American. You're also a defense attorney, and your connection to this shooting is uh, Major Hassan's your cousin. After 9-11, was it, did it become much harder to become a Muslim in America? Am I painting too rosy a picture? I can speak from my own perspective. After September 11th, I knew things had changed, but I didn't personally. And I think your statement about integrating, I feel as though I've integrated normally with, with society. But if you ask how somebody who was born after 9-11, who's a Muslim in this country, as to how they're processing everything they see, especially in the recent times when you have all these xenophobic type of comments and calls for keeping Muslims out of the country. And how can somebody growing up now hearing that find comfort and find patriotism in, in their American identity? All right, Carrie Cahill, now I'll turn to you. Tell me about your connection to the Fort Hood massacre and then bring it up to how you met Nader and uh, how you came to, you know, be involved in this as uh, something other than, you know, you were sucked up as a tragic victim, but you turned it into, well, you know, you were a relative of a tragedy, but you turned it into something. Well, but I think, I'm glad you said the word victim because I think that the whole point is that I don't see myself that way. And I didn't see my, and I still don't see my father that way. And I think that's the key is if you look at yourself as a victim and you look at yourself like you're stuck in a corner, then you're going to get a lot angrier and a lot scared or a lot faster because you think you can't do anything. And that's not true. You know, two years after the shooting, when the Nawal Foundation was started and I found out about it, it was a way for me to go, that's something I can do. Because I had Muslim friends before the shooting. So I had been exposed to Islam in in the correct format in terms of like what it's supposed to be, which is a religious faith that can, you know, there's many ways up the mountain type theory, right? That's how I sort of look at the world religiously. So I saw an interview with him, and the thing that struck me was when someone asked him if he would, it was either speak to the family members, or what would you say to them if you could, or something, and he said if they would even... Yeah, Nader said this in the interview with Bob Woodruff, and he said if they would even talk to me. And what bothers me with that is that he didn't do anything wrong. And I've had people call our story a story of forgiveness, and that is not true. And I think that's the thing we have to get to in America. And what I think we can do is that the sins of the father are not the sins of the son, and they are not the sins of the family. And so then we can look at the situation a little less black and white and see the gray zones and find the people easier. Because I think if you look at it black and white, then everyone's looking for a guy in a beard and a white hat who speaks with an accent. Yeah. And I think Philip Mudd just wrote something down because he's going to talk about this. But that's why stereotypes don't serve us. Yeah. 
I mean, not her. So, this is this is radio. There's a yeah. podcast. The guy's blue eyes and probably lighter skin than I do. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. Less and if you look at like in the documentary, but in the documentary, it shows the shooter, and I mean, yeah. shaved head, shaved. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. I had a friend tell me he that he showed like up. He looks like every. He looks army like a dude. dude. Yeah. I mean, he went into guns galore, Texas gun shop, mm-hmm. Texas guys who literally talked like this on the stand. They spent three months teaching him how to shoot. Yeah. They did. Your dad was on base that day. He's a member. He was an army. What rank was he? He was retired. So yeah. he's a chief warrant officer, too. Yeah. Um, it's like the highest civilian rank. Yeah. He was yeah. enlisted. Yeah. Cause, yeah. Oh, sorry. Right, right. Yeah. Well, he was enlisted and then he got up to that rank mm-hmm. um, and he retired and then he kept working for the military. So he worked for the VA for a little while and then he worked at Fort Hood as a civilian contractor for like seven, nine years. And he would not have died had he not charged him. Because he only was shooting at soldiers. He yeah. was targeting soldiers. So, Nader, I want to ask you, did you look at engaging with the victims and the family members as your opportunity or your responsibility? And was it a responsibility born of your religion, your kinship with, with the shooter, your patriotism as an American? If it was indeed responsibility, where did it come from? Um, That's a great question because I remember getting the email forwarded to me from the foundation when the emails had come in and Carrie's right, there were a few other family members who had contacted me. So before November and when they came for the two-year anniversary DC, I picked them up from the the station and brought them to my house and remembering we just had a one-year, less than one-year-old child and my wife was concerned I'd been married, you know, a very short time and here we were bringing in a family whose father, our family member, had taken away from him. So I would say a half an hour. I think Carrie and I realized if none of this happened and we went to the same high school, we probably would have been friends hanging out. I guess my question is, did you want to do it to explain Islam? Did you want to do it? I mean, you're a lawyer. You believe yeah. in the justice system. No, I, I What don't. was driving you? One, helping them heal. Yeah. And so when they came to my house, the first thing I told them was, any question you ask me, I'll answer. There's nothing I'm going to hide from you guys. That was, I think, a dual healing, though, in hindsight, is that it was helping me with my own sense of trying to put my hands around this cloud. Once that happened, I think that the board, the the people who were on the foundation, and Carrie joined the foundation to work together, that it was incumbent upon us to do whatever we could with this positive relationship. And uh, that kind of turned the direction for what we had originally thought about the foundation, but purely out of responsibility. And I would tell you my short answer is because I'm American. Philip, I want to ask you and your expertise. Here we have Nader. Tell me, tell me if I'm wrong, but if we take the two cousins, Nader and Nadal Hassan, at 10, they seem really similar. At 15, they seem sim- like really similar kids, you know? Maybe in their early 20s, they seem like similar kids, same trajectories, becoming similar people involved with a similar background. One changes and one's, in a way, the ideal American. Is that something that we can ever figure out? Or is our responsibility just after it happens to jump on it? Let's make one key differentiation here that I saw in case after case. The difference between conspiracies, that is when two or more people gather together and one-offs was substantial. Mm -hmm. Whenever a one-off came to the table, we did the director's briefings every morning at 7.15. So you'd cover three or four cases. Whenever a one-off came to the table, the first question I'd have is, What's the mental condition of this individual? You would not have that question in a broader conspiracy because that gets weeded out. So I think one of the questions as we look at cases like this is before we characterize someone as a terrorist or uh, someone who sort of uh, sullies the name of Islam, what's the mental condition of the individual? Beyond that, 
these one-offs are hard to find. And Hassan was a one-off because he acted alone, but he did try to reach out Correct. and conspire with notorious That's terrorists. Right. Yeah. That's right. And and to be blunt, we made mistakes in following that case in the federal government at the FBI, and I testified to that. But in a lot of these cases, if you're going to find somebody, whether they're a one-off or a conspirator, you have to put your hands around a mistake. 330 million people, they have to talk to the wrong person, email the wrong person, phone the wrong person. If they don't make a mistake in a, in a country of 330 million people, and this is why I fault in some ways American politicians and the American public, don't expect that the feds can find them. Yeah. There's some anticipation that a school shooting is a random tragedy and that someone who shoots up a school who happen to have a, happens to have ISIS propaganda is a preventable crime. That is not that distinction doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But if we say there are signs, I mean, to what extent do we define signs? I mean, I hear politicians saying, well, leads should have been followed in San Bernardino because neighbors saw Muslims and co coming and going to a house and packages being delivered. You probably get packages delivered and have Muslim visitors, right, Nader? No, not anymore. All right. Well, anyway. <laughs> no, but anyway, that's a serious question. I mean, we could define signs until we become a police state, and yes. I know this is something you, tr you struggle with. You say that in the documentary. Yeah, I, th I think one of the challenges that I see is that in individual cases, whether you're doing congressional testimony or media, people say, why didn't you find this? And mm -hmm. I always encourage them to say, okay, rack and stack 5,000 cases and go from that ocean down to the drop. There are characteristics you want to look for in those cases. The first characteristic you want is, is there an indication of violence? Because if, if someone is saying, I support ISIS, that's a constitutional right. Yeah. Once you get an indication of violence, and that can come from a human source, from somebody in a chat room, there's a series of questions you got to ask. Who are they talking to? Where have they traveled? Where's their money coming from? Do they have access to weapons and explosives? And the, and the investigation will escalate rapidly. But until you get an indication of violence, and this is one of the challenges, if someone's brain switches on overnight and they say, well, now I was sort of thinking about ISIS and I want to go shoot up a shopping mall, you can't find those people. All right, Greg, to you. I find that really good stories, documentaries, fiction films, really good stories answer a question. What was the question you were answering? Because this is not a question. This is a sprawling morass. This is a situation. It's hard to get your head around it. What question were you trying to answer with Homegrown? Should we be afraid? Mm -hmm. You know, because the previous film I made for HBO was called Manhunt, about the hunt for bin Laden. Actually, Phil Mudd was in it. Actually, Phil Mudd had the final word in it. Um, he has a final word in this film, too. Yeah, we could see maybe and hear why. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And um, But I think when we look at what what the U.S. government did in response to, to the events of 9-11, how we tracked down bin Laden and, and dismantled largely al-Qaeda, you know, there was a whole operation, a whole apparatus, counterterrorism apparatus built to, to do that internationally. And then I wanted to see, I wanted to find out what was going on here domestically, and partly because... Phil had transitioned from the, uh, well, had moved from the CIA to the FBI and helped set up their counterterrorism operations here at home. And I wanted to really unpack that and to understand what the real threat was. And actually, to be honest with you, I had that intellectual curiosity, but also I had a personal motivation. And it kind of goes back to what we've been talking about is that I live in Santa Monica. And in 2011, 2012, there was a, a school shooting there small one by comparison because the shooter was was killed immediately by campus police but a guy who grew up out there went to went to our local elementary school 
went to the local community college fully armed and entering the li- started entering the library, intent to shoot a lot of people, killed three people, and was killed by the campus police. And the guy's last name was Zawahiri. He was Lebanese. And when I first heard that, I thought, holy, this is, this, this is a terrorist attack. But then it turns out he was Lebanese Christian. Mm-hmm. But then he's not a terrorist. He's just another mm-hmm. deranged school shooter. But had he been a deranged school shooter who happened to be a Lebanese Muslim and maybe have looked, had looked at some jihadi uh, material on the Internet before he'd done this deranged thing, it would have become a national story and would have been a terrorist sort of incident or seen that way. And, and then I started unpacking that a bit and talking to some people within the, within the counterterrorism business. And, and people said to me at the National Counterterrorism Center in Washington, when there's, a school, when there's a shooting in America, one of the first questions that is asked by people very high up is, is what's the guy's last name? Mm-hmm. And if it's you know, a Muslim last name, it becomes a potential terrorism case. If it's anybody else, it's just another shooting in America. And I thought, that's crazy. And I've got to start sort of trying to figure out what's really going on. And that's so, you know, on a deeper level, I had a, a sense that I wanted to make a follow on the manhunt and sort of look at how this counterterrorism state that we'd constructed in, in response to 9-11 was impacting us here at home. And also just to, just to say, OK, how should we view this? this? And is it a real threat? What's the extent of it? And how should we and should we be? afraid there's a lot of fear out there a lot of fear out there but philip mudd i get what greg was saying i get that if the deranged ideology is something about aliens you just call it a deranged ideology if the deranged ideology is about isis or jihad that's a different ball of wax but i think there is some value in that in that paranoid schizophrenics aren't being activated and courted and there aren't terrorist organizations trying to burrow their way in and cause San Bernardino type events. I mean, there is a value to asking, is this motivated by jihad? Is that why this killing took place? I half agree with you, but I think this country is inherently unanalytic. We spend, and I participated in spending billions of dollars. My metric for looking at threat is what affects a family, in particular a child, a mother, a dad. If you look at conversations about everything from synthetic drugs, which are in high schools today, gang activity, which is endemic across America. By the way, that's Central American and Mexican. Nobody says, and that's thousands of people dying every year. Nobody's ever said, wow, we should keep a list of Mexicans in this country because they could be cartel members. I participated in this national security state, especially after 9-11, because the state said, you will ensure this never happens again. I don't think what we did was analytically sound. Mm -hmm. If you just say pound for pound, how does the incidence of violence affect an American family relating to terrorism versus pound for pound? How much money do we spend on cartels? Do we have a national cartel center? No. Because people said, and the politicians reflecting this, we're worried we don't understand this phenomenon. These are Muslim people. We don't understand the religion. Fifty people die, and it's now, in a country of 330 million people, a national security disaster. It's a tragedy. It is not a disaster on par with what we witness in high schools with drugs and gangs. And this can't be emphasized more than the fact that we now have to speak of the second Fort Hood shooting. Mm -hmm. So there were two mass shootings at Fort Hood. One was terrorism. One wasn't. But they both terrorized and traumatized family members. By the way, how would you react, Harry, to that second one? The same exact way I reacted to the first one. I went straight to a a friend who had cable and I called everybody I knew and I made sure I knew where my mother was because she's on base all the time. How'd the community react? Any differently? Yeah. 
And here's, here's the difference. The second shooting, he snapped. The first shooting, he planned it for three months. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I think, when we talk about terrorism as a difference, I think what we have to do is talk about, like, what, what are we even defining it as? Because I don't understand why Dylan Roof is considered not a terrorist when he was trying to, when he justified his actions with an ideology. So I think sometimes when we look at this, I think what we're not looking at is that domestic terrorism, to me, comes in a lot, a lot more different shapes and sizes than that. And it's about pre-planning and it's about people who want to fit in somewhere so badly that they find this to justify their actions. Because the shooter who killed my dad didn't have a beard the day he did it. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that he was actually that radicalized till later when he was in his cell alone by himself and he had to figure out how to not go crazy. I think he used Islam to justify his actions. I don't think the radicalization came first. Is she right, do you think, Philip? Absolutely. She... Yeah. Absolutely correct. I find people all the time who are who are looking for justification for something they feel. And they will shop. Yeah. Which groups gives me justification? So if you want to look for the group and now... And, and now there's an online web community correct. saying, go ahead. Yeah, Correct. And, and one of the uh, significant aspects of this online community is that in contrast to the 1990s, an individual operating alone might not find other people who validate, who justify. Exactly. We see it in sex crimes, by the way. A 14, 15-year-old who couldn't have validated his views in the 90s now will find a community that validates. And so the life of or the, the uh, age of a sex offender might go down. Validation. So they're chopping around. I feel angry. I feel like I've been wronged. Somebody says it's appropriate. I'm going to attach myself to that ideology. And Carrie, my last question for you is how has uh, watching the documentary affected you? I mean, I told somebody, I said, I felt like I put the Fort Hood shooting in a box. I put it on a shelf, and it felt really good to put it away. And now I feel like I have to take the box out and get it out again and open it up, and it sucks. After the shooting in Lafayette, I live in New Orleans, and I actually went to the movie theater the next day, which is not something I have been able to do for five years. Because anytime there's been a major shooting, I tend to just want to stay home, and I don't want to go out. Because movie theaters have horrific exits. They have two at the bottom, and that's it. Yeah. It's basically, I mean, it's very easy to not get out. But I think like that. And so this is I'm probably not going to go out in crowds for much, <laughs> for a bit. But I also think it's important because I think what happens, too, is a lot of people speak for the dead that have no business doing it at all. There were 13 people who died that day, and they were all different. They all voted for different people. Some of them probably didn't. Some of them were different religions, different nationalities. And I think what happens sometimes is because people want an easy person to blame, because we glorify World War II for that, it was so, there was one clear enemy, and this is a lot harder because there kind of isn't, and it's a really nebulous thing, and terrorism is in every country, not just one. I mean, the best way to honor those 13 people is to go and take care of some veterans because 22 kill themselves a day right now. 22. That's a lot bigger than terrorism. And we're not fixing that. So I guess that's that's where I start to just, and you can see me, I'm getting soapboxy and I'm getting angry, but I just, put the box back on the shelf. yeah, I know, I know, put the box back on the shelf, put the box, but I just, I guess that's where I get angry is that we're just being, we're just so scared and we're so angry and we won't just take a step back and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, 
my parents were immigrants or my grandparents were immigrants or my this or my that. And wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if I was on the other side of this? Yeah. And that's all you have to think for just a second, just a second. If Carrie makes a comment, and uh, actually she wrote something, and I just, I think it's important in this topic. And she always says, when you're listening or you're speaking to somebody about this subject, don't have the next thing you're going to say already in your head. Sit back and listen. And I think that is probably the best advice when you're talking about this because there is no safe space. Everybody has their opinion and they're coming in to try to put that upon you rather than listen and hear the other side. And, and God bless Carrie for doing that in this situation. Well, I'm going to take that advice and not say anything else except thank you to Carrie Cahill, Nader Hassan, Philip Mudd, and Greg Barker. He is the director of Homegrown, The Counter-Terror Dilemma, which is on HBO Debuts on Monday, but you know how HBO works. It's wherever you want it on demand. Thank you, guys. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Taking advantage of your financial future is one of those goals that seems like something you should say and probably do say to people who you want to impress, in-laws and the like. But have you done it? Have you really done it? I'm going to introduce you to a service called Betterment. Betterment.com. Actually, if you're right, betterment.com slash the gist, you qualify for an interesting offer. I've gone on the site, and it's just fascinating. Even if you don't want to deposit money right away, poke around. I think it will be educational. Right off the bat, they just say, write your age, write your income, and then they generate a list of goals. And I never even considered this, but they say goal one, priority one, a safety net based on your income. I guess it's based on your income. They target uh, a certain amount of money to set aside three to six months of unplanned expenses. I never thought like this, but it makes sense. Then priority two is retirement, and then priority three is general investing. And with drop-down menus, you could figure out, well, let's tweak what the safety net should be. Well, let's tweak what maybe my retirement philosophy should be. Do I want it in a traditional IRA? What about my uh, stocks and bonds? You don't just get to set the number. They give you feedback. They tell you what the right apportionment is. It's just extremely fascinating, and we have a special offer if you're interested in financial planning or looking at the service, and it is this. Go to betterment.com slash gist, and you can get up to six months of automated investing free. You get a lot of information that way. It's, as I said, educational. Even if you don't want to give them a dollar right now, you could decide to do that in the future. That's betterment.com slash gist, betterment, investing made better. And now the spiel. We've heard the claims, the boasts, the expectations, but now it's time for Realistic Network News. Realistic Network News notes that Bernie Sanders has won the Democratic primary in New Hampshire. It was an open primary, meaning one doesn't have to be a registered Democrat to vote, which is convenient since Bernie Sanders is himself not a registered Democrat. But he is the winner in New Hampshire. Together, we have sent the message that will echo from Wall Street to Washington, from Maine to California. Maine and California, two states that have gone Democratic in the last six straight presidential elections, a street in New York, which has gone Democratic in the last seven presidential elections, and Washington, D.C., which has gone Democratic in every presidential election, which it has had a vote. So Sanders really making the electability case that he could reach out to all Americans 
all Americans defined as people who live in places that only vote Democrat. Sanders also further bolsters his case that he has general election appeal by citing once more the paltry beneficence that his message inspires. And you know what that average contribution was? $27! Feeling the burn was Hillary Clinton, who foolishly tried to wade into this game of anything you can raise, I can raise lower, I can raise skimpier donations than you. The vast majority giving less than $100. I know that doesn't fit with the narrative. To which Bernie said, $100? My donors have never heard of $100. If one of them gave me $100, the next three guys would have to give a dollar, $6.51, and an empty envelope. But the stamp on the envelope wasn't postmarked, so we reused it after we declared its full value on FEC forms. $100. But because of this incredible, shocking win by the Democratic Socialist, the Realistic News Network can report that he is now trouncing Hillary Clinton in the delegate race by two. He is leading by two delegates. He has 32 delegates out of the 2,300. 82 delegates needed to win the nomination. Bernie is certainly in the driver's seat. Oh, wait, we have not yet counted the pledged superdelegates. So now the count changes to Hillary, 394, Bernie, 42. And Hillary Clinton leads in South Carolina. The real clear politics polling average says she leads 62 to 32 percent. But the Realistic News Network, though realistic, is also a news network. So we got to say this word momentum. There, we said it. Momentum. So now things are all even. On the Republican side, the Realistic News Network goes to Ted Cruz's victory speech as we offer our patented coverage with a caveat. What an incredible, incredible evening. Mm, You came in third. We made history tonight. You, the good people of New Hampshire, and our volunteers from all across this nation, have made history tonight. Well, in the sense that history is anything that happened before now, yeah, sure. In the sense that 300,000 people voted in the Republican primary and you got a little over 30,000 of those votes, which is 65,000 less than Donald Trump and 12,000 less than John Kasich. Yeah, that is a thing that happened before now, sure. Together, we have done what the pundits and the media said could not be done. Well, 538, the most analytical of the pundits, predicted using a model that includes polls plus endorsements and past results that you would get 12% of the vote. When using a model that concentrated just on state polls, 538 said you'd get 12.8% of the vote. You wound up getting 11.6% of the vote. So I guess they didn't predict it. That was the result that all of us were told was impossible. Literally no one said that. You got 11% of the vote. In a poll, NFL commissioner Roger Goodell has an approval rating of 19%. You got 11%. 11% is the Rotten Tomatoes score of the Hulk Hogan film No Holds Barred, Dead Heat starring Joe Piscopo, other 11% Rotten Tomato films, Big Stan, the Rob Schneider vehicle, Shelley Long in Hello Again, Leslie Nielsen in Dead and Loving It, all rated fresh by 11% of critics. Also, Jaws 3, Garfield 2, A Tale of Two Kitties, Crocodile Dundee 2, 
and Crocodile Dundee 3. And after that, after those two movies got 11%, they stopped making Crocodile Dundees. The Realistic News Network can report that Ted Cruz surprised everyone by clearing a very impressive yardstick. Only the yardstick actually measured only 30 inches, and the meet was won by a guy who jumped eight feet. On to Marco Rubio, who owned his debate gaffe and sought to reassure supporters that such bungles are a thing of the past. I know many people disappointed. I'm disappointed with tonight. I want you to understand. But I want you to understand something. I want you to understand something. Our disappointment tonight is not on you. It's on me. It's on me. I did not, I did not do well on Saturday night, so listen to this. That will never happen again. That will never happen again. So if you missed that assurance that Marco Rubio just made, that we just played, that Marco Rubio won't ever repeat himself in a debate, here is a precise transcript of Marco Rubio's words vowing not to repeat himself. I know many people are disappointed. I'm disappointed. But I want you to understand. But I want you to understand something. Our disappointment tonight is not on you. It's on me. It's on me. I did not do well on Saturday night, so I want you to listen to this. This will never happen again. This will never happen again. So I guess the rest of his supporters can easily rest easily. Easily. For the rest of the campaign, easily resting the spotlight away from Rubio was John Kasich. The Realistic News Network notes the Ohio governor's victory lap and congratulations. After pretty much moving to New Hampshire, holding 102 town hall meetings in New Hampshire, getting his blood swapped out for maple syrup, John Kasich did not even get half the votes of Donald Trump, who slept in New Hampshire a total of zero times. We do not mean to be mean. John Kasich is an accomplished, reasonable, positive, professional politician who is willing to accommodate those who disagree with his vision. You could not concoct a set of attributes more out of line with Republican voters in 2016. But John Kasich does have a total of four delegates out of 2,380. And this means that New Hampshire winner Donald Trump who also leads big in the polls in South Carolina, which votes in just 10 days, can certainly be called the front runner because with 70% more delegates than his closest rival, Mr. Trump has now amassed such a haul, the Realistic News Network can report that he has more than one, but not quite one and a half percent of the total delegates needed to clinch the nomination. This is the Realistic News Network. Keep it here and keep it real. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, just producer, is never, ever getting back together with Marco Rubio. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please clap. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, shocked the world, who predicted he would at best rise to the rank of co-senior director of content with the Panoply Network, not including Happier with Gretchen Rubin. The gist, we are going back to New Jersey to reassess we should get there in two hours, 14 if there's traffic on the GWB. Umperu, Deperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>